Welcome back to Table Talk. I'm Mandela Dressler. Today, we will be talking about the racial disparities in St. Louis during the time of COVID-19. Joining me is the co-host of We Live Here, Lauren Jalion. We Live Here is a podcast on St. Louis Public Radio. They describe it as a St. Louis podcast that keeps it real about race and class for people somewhere on the woke spectrum. We recorded this on Thursday, May 14th. It is now Sunday, May 17th. For more information on COVID-19, visit the CDC website. Also, a special thank you to Anchor for providing me with the resources to record a podcast online during these times. Let's get started. To start out, um, so what is your name, each of you, and what your age is, what your pronouns are, and um, kind of just your background and how you came to be co-hosts on We Live Here. Okay. I'm, I'm Jalian Yang. Uh, my pronouns are she, they, and I am 30. I am the host and lead producer for We Live Here podcast. Uh, how I got into podcasting, I started another podcast with uh, my former co-host, Treasure Shields Redmond, who's a poet and educator. Uh, she calls herself a teacherpreneur, and we started Who Raised You podcast. And that was on similar themes. We were also talking about race, also talking about community building. Um, the difference being that that podcast started with poems and interviews. And this um, We Live Here podcast is more of a narrative genre podcast. We talk about mm -hmm. race and class in St. Louis and beyond. So um, I've really had a good time working with Lauren, my co-producer on that, and she can introduce herself. Um, hello, my name is Lauren Brown. I'm the other co-host and producer for We Live Here. I'm 22 years old, 23 in July. So I'm getting up there. Um, I graduated from the University of Missouri uh, School of Journalism in May 2019. And so in college, I had um, a radio show on the student-run station. I worked at the NPR affiliate on campus. Um, and I uh, was in National Association for Black Journalists there. And so that's um, kind of been my area. I did a broadcast track, but specifically radio. And so I was introduced to We Live Here from one of my editors at KBIA, which is at Mizzou's campus. Um, and our, I guess you would call him, I guess our senior producer, Tim Lloyd, he's another graduate of the School mm -hmm. of Journalism. And he passed the job along to the station. And so they um, told me I should apply. And I was like, okay, I'll think about it. You know, I was waiting a couple of weeks because I was thinking, oh, I'll take a year off and like, you know, just have fun or explore or whatever. And it was like, you should really, you should really um, apply. So I applied, I actually got the job. And so I moved to St. Louis in June. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so everything's been great since. How have you guys liked St. Louis? I mean, how long have you lived here? Ja Lian? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm sorry. Okay, got it. Ja Lian. I came to St. Louis in 2012, so it's been quite a while, around eight years, mm -hmm. and I really liked it. Um, it's a city where I feel like I've kind of grown up. I feel like once you graduate from college, you have a bit more growing up to do before you're really kind of starting to get a feel for what, how the world works. And one of the major lessons that St. Louis taught me was about how race works in America. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Silicon Valley a pretty wealthy area um, full of Asian and Asian Americans. And here in St. Louis, it's an older city. And I really kind of learned about the history of America here 
the legacies of segregation um, and going to a social work school, which was why I came to St. Louis in the first place, getting my master of social work and as, as well as my master of divinity. Um, it was a huge wake up call about, you know, if you're going to do work in the community, what does that mean? What are people dealing with? And also um, when people are trying to build community, when they're trying to um, help each other out, how they're trying to um, manage these le legacies of racism, how do they deal with that? So yeah, I learned a lot. Cool. <laughs> That's good. Um, so I've been in St. Louis since June. Um, and I'm originally from the south suburbs of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to a mostly black high school, mostly black elementary, middle school, a mostly black area. And so when I got to Mizzou, that's when I started to be in mostly white spaces. So that's when I started to learn about kind of like how the world really works. It wasn't like my hometown anymore. I wasn't just in my small bubble. So I had to learn and I had to grow quickly. Um, and the protests at Mizzou actually happened my freshman year. So I really had to learn quickly. Um, so I think that being in St. Louis and going to Mizzou first, I kind of learned how race in America works. And I think that St. Louis really has a, um, it's very uh, interesting, the fragmentation, how things are set up, the, all the municipalities, all these different things. And so I've kind of been learning a lot about um, structural racism specifically in certain areas. And it's even made me think about how certain areas back home are kind of similar. And so I think I've just started to take a deeper look into um, how, things are set up and how things are already in place in a certain way that already allows for these inequities to, you know, thrive. And so I think that St. Louis has really taught me a lot. And I think this job has taught me a lot because I'm taking deeper looks into things that I never thought about before. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about was kind of the media reporting on coronavirus, um, especially in St. Louis. and how do you feel reporting impacts the public's perspective on coronavirus? That's a really big question. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that our show did early on was to pivot to covering coronavirus. And mm -hmm. it was a huge pivot because um, something that our show likes to do is cover a, a major topic and then cover that throughout a season. And so we were preparing for a whole other season, um, something that Lauren can speak to later on um, the experience of being black on campus, mm -hmm. college campuses. And it was really difficult because we actually had visited her alma mater, Mizzou, and collected a lot of tape. We actually had a lot of really good stories and it's something that we plan to circle back later, but we found mm -hmm. that it's difficult to cover that right now when schools are closing, so much was uncertain. Mm -hmm. and we felt that we had to be um, you know, loyal to our listeners um, and provide them a service where we are covering COVID-19, which is something that was evolving every day. And we wanted to do something unique, which was to put a racial equity lens on COVID-19 because um, a lot of the coverage that you're seeing is um, about the virus, about health, about what people can do, prevention, everything we're learning right now, um, and then the death tolls too. Um, and we're seeing more and more, thankfully, as data is emerging and people are putting a critical lens on what's happening with COVID-19 about the role of race and also, you know, the legacy of racism in this country and how that's playing out with mm -hmm. how COVID-19 is particularly impacting African-Americans. And so what our show is really doing is 
um, not just taking everyday stories, which are super important of everyday uh, experiences of people, but also looking towards the future of what are people doing right now towards solutions. So Lauren can speak a little bit more to what it's been like um, working with us on that and putting these stories together. Yeah, so like Ja was saying beforehand, uh, we were focusing on being Black on campus. Um, like I said before, I was at Mizzou in the middle of the protest, and so I kind of had a firsthand experience. Um, I was working with American Public Media as well as a freelancer, and so we had all these ideas. We had episodes. We had a lot of stuff in the works and so yeah. I was a little sad Aww. I was like oh man I was like oh man we had to pivot but I knew that what was going on was so important that we needed to focus on it and I think that um in the beginning early on it was like these misconceptions that oh black people can't get COVID and it was just all these different things and I'm like oh my goodness so um and just seeing how this virus is exacerbating the things that we already known. We have already known that um, African-Americans are more susceptible to diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease, all these different things. And the lack of healthcare insurance, a lot of uh, African-Americans uh, have no healthcare or less in insurance. So I think that focusing on this and reading on things such as like the St. Louis American, they've done uh, great stories about the toll has been taken on African-Americans and the total deaths in St. Louis and how the first 12 deaths in St. Louis City were African-Americans. And I think that it's actually giving people a um, a more inside look because I think people don't actually think about what's going on in other areas and even our episode on food insecurity. A lot of people don't think about how these areas don't have grocery stores or they only have junk food stores, corner stores, gas stations, you know, they don't have the access to get to healthy food. So if you don't have the access to get to healthy food and then you're already um, more likely to have high blood pressure, diabetes and these other illnesses, then it's already putting you at the top of the list to catch the virus and and sometimes uh, pass away from the virus. So I think that it's been um, really important, the work that we've been doing. And it's actually been um I think it's been challenging, but it's also been very important. And I'm glad that we did make the pivot because it's so important right now. And I think that it's something that will, you know, it'll be in the textbooks. It'll be, you know, something that people will talk about forever. So I think it's yeah. very important. Um, so just, I, that, those are all really good points. And I think that you can see it, especially in St. Louis, um, how there is such a divide between who has resources during the pandemic and who has access to food. Um, I know my school or the SLPS school district, they're providing free food to students um, weekly, but I mean, there's so many kids that rely on the food at their schools and there's just so many different problems with it. But um, kind of what I wanted to talk about was um, how media sways the public's belief of it too, like how some big media outlets aren't really reporting on the impact of Afri on African Americans. Um, so, yeah, and that's something that we focused on um, really early on in one of our interviews um, or several of our interviews, actually, to ask the question: You know, what feelings does it bring up for people, or what misconceptions do they want to debunk about COVID nineteen and its impact on African Americans? 
if you look at the news and, and some ways of portraying it or certain headlines, it can just seem like, oh, people are just experiencing this and then there's no explanation. Or um, it's very easy for people to blame other people and say, oh, well, you have your own personal responsibility, your own personal choices. But when we look at history, when we look at um, how structural racism sets up some of the things that um, Lauren has talked about in terms of obstacles to healthy food or um, healthcare or um, decisions being made about where testing sites are located without important people at the table and important people being people who are most impacted. Um, that all plays a role. So uh, Lauren was about to speak before me and then I jumped in. So Lauren, you want to jump in? Yeah, so what I was just thinking about was how in the beginning, a lot of the data didn't show who you know, who was specifically dying from COVID-19. And I think when that uh, data became available, it was like, oh my gosh, like this is really, you know, it's really impacting these areas at such a greater, um, at such a greater risk. And so I think that the media, I think that if, if the data had been done sooner, like it should have been, you know, like some of these things that it should already be, it should be given that this, that this data should be taken. But I think the media does help those people who, like I said before, misconceptions that old black people can't get co uh, coronavirus, you know, like that's something that how media can also, you know, tell you things that are untrue. So it's like, you have to differentiate between, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? You have to differentiate between a reliable source and other things that are just going on, you know, Twitter or hashtags and yeah. things of that nature. Like you have to really um, sift through a lot of news and, and figure out what's, what's the best quality, what's accurate, what's fair. And you have to figure out what, what's a good um, network for you to pay attention to so that you have all the things that you need, especially a lot of areas don't have the education or the, or the resources to even know a, a lot about these things. A lot of these areas, if you don't have a testing site, you don't know if you can go, you don't know what the um, symptoms are. If you don't have access to internet to, to Google what the, what the symptoms are. Um, a lot of uh, students don't have access to laptops to do their homework. So it's a lot of these things where it's like you have to pay attention to the things that are happening around you and not just in your or a specific area. Mm -hmm. According to a Missouri state government website, 12% of the population is African American, yet they consist of 38% of fatalities from COVID-19. John Hopkins University data also shows that Louisiana has 32% to 70%, Illinois with 14% to 42%, and Michigan with 14% to 41%. As of April 13th, the St. Louis Health Department showed that 16 out of 19 deaths from COVID-19 were African-Americans. So then I also wanted to talk about the wealth gap in particular in St. Louis and how, you know, the economy is not doing so well right now and how it's not going to do great after or after quarantine or whatever. Um, and how you think it will impact the wealth gap between wealthy neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods in St. Louis? That is such a huge topic to tackle, and I think <laughs> why me and Lauren are pausing a little bit. Um, but the other thing is, we've talked about this as a show. That's something that we have to cover at some point, um, because right now the focus is on COVID-19. It's on the pandemic. It's about um, healthcare, and rightfully so. How how are people experiencing this disease in their daily lives, and how does that impact? You know, are they needing to get food? How are they schooling their children? Um, what's happening to people who are incarcerated? Things like that. 
But as they, as time goes on, we know, and right now we're feeling the effects. Unemployment is higher than ever um, right now. We're seeing skyrocketing unemployment rates. So we know that the economy is being impacted. And so our plan is to also put a racial equity lens on the economy. Um, we haven't figured out exactly how we're looking at that, but one of the people that we interviewed recently it talked about how do we look at economic growth um, from a justice perspective? Mm -hmm. How do we understand um, that racial equity is a really good way to approach economic growth? Because right now there's a lot of conversations about reopening the economy at risk to workers, especially essential workers, um, without thinking about you know who who lives or dies, or yeah. do we have enough personal protective equipment, or what decisions are being made about ventilators? All of these things. But if we're thinking about how do we um, make sure that people are able to care for themselves, get the resources they need, and survive um, and thrive, then that's kind of a more important question. Mm -hmm. um, what I would add to that is just that the difference between these areas is obviously the resources and the money that is being put into these areas. So if you live in an area where you don't have access to transportation, a grocery store is miles and miles away, your your kids are now at home because school is out, you don't have a way to get meals for them because they can't just go to school and get breakfast and lunch. And, you know, people are losing jobs, people are being furloughed, people are being laid off. And it's just really taking a toll on those specific areas. Because if you already don't have these resources, then you lose your job and now it's, you know, it's, it's even worse. So I think that we have to pay attention to how we um, disperse resources and money, <clears throat> sorry, and money. And also um, we talked a lot about with some of our latest interviews about um, philanthropy work and all these different ways of how money is being spent and how money is, is given to certain areas first. And so I think that's um, really something important that would, that would help those things in the future. And I would say also, if anyone's interested in this topic, we're going to be learning alongside you all. I think this, it's going to be so huge. Uh, and pe people are talking about it as the pandemic is set to have warlike impacts in terms of how it's impacting people, right? And also mm -hmm. the economy. And so we can think about in daily life, what does that look like? It looks like people who have already have difficult access to um, difficulty getting childcare, that's going to be even more important. How are you supposed to do a job if you can't have childcare? Or people whose lives are touched by incarceration. If your loved one is incarcerated, how are they supposed to work and provide for their family? Or if you're having to pay for their telephone bills while they're in jail or prison, where does that money not go to then? Mm -hmm. um, there's just so many layers um, that are important to think about during this time. How do you think that people can make sure that their uh, leaders or their local government or whatever, that they are getting a voice um, while we are stuck at home and we can't really be attending meetings or, you know, that kind of thing? Um, I think it's all about what Josh said is, using your voice in a creative way. So um, a lot of times we reach out to people so that we can hear their stories. If we have social media platforms, you have all these different ways you can call, you could call your elected officials, you can, you can call the mayor, you know, it's different things that you can do um, now during this time to make sure that your voice is heard. Um, but that's, that's all that I could really think of right now in this moment. I think it's just using your voice in a creative way. 
And I agree with Lauren because that's a huge emphasis of our show. We always emphasize stories because a lot of media can do things really quickly, give you facts really quickly, give you good quotes. Um, but we're we are lucky to be able to spend a lot of time on the topics that we cover. Um, a lot of our shows are around 30 minutes. Each segment might be 10 minutes. And so, um, and it all depends, right? We could go even to an hour if the story mm -hmm. takes that long, right? But what we found is that with stories, then the issues become real to people um, and people examine them with more empathy. Um, and then if you look around yourself, you know, there are traditional ways of contacting elected leaders. And now there's a lot more creativity, like Lauren said. People are, I think, going in their cars to different places to hold rallies. That's one way to make your voice heard. Um, but what we find in interviews also is that another way that people are trying to make themselves heard and make the communities that they want to see is they're taking action. Um, and yeah. so I think it's our job to also look around us and see who's already trying to act. Um, we've, we've heard that there are people who are uh, making sure that food distribution is happening. We heard that people are, you know, doing mutual aid, helping each other out, checking on their neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, we're also hearing people who are advocating for people who are unhoused and people who are incarcerated. And those are all really important and good things. I heard um, your podcast on like the food resources and that sort of thing, food insecurities, um, and how you talked about how, you know, there's only some food in certain areas because some places you have to walk miles to be able to get to a grocery store um, and you can't have access to food. So how do you think that, um, like, do you know any good organizations necessarily that we can try to help right now um, to make sure that people are getting the food and resources that they need? That's a really good question. And it's a tricky one for us in our show because what we try to do is make sure, like we said, that we're highlighting the stories that are happening and people who are doing good work, um, but we can't really endorse people. Um, <laughs> that's part of being a journalist. Um, mm -hmm. So what I would say is just, you know, like, like you did, pay attention to um, the, the podcast that we did and also see who's connected to each other. I think that's the fun thing about um, journalism too. So if there's anyone out there who wants to figure out how to help their community, something that we do with our sources is say, okay, what are you doing particular source? And then how's that source connecting with another person who might be doing something similar? And you'll find these networks and these webs of people doing similar things. And I think that's kind of the fun part of figuring out, you know, how, how we can help each other. How have you like seen over, I mean, I know you guys are more new hosts, but how have you seen the racial inequalities in St. Louis um, develop or change uh, since the Black Lives Matter movement and after Ferguson? I think since I wasn't here when all those things happened before, I kind of was on the outside looking in. I think if I was actually here and in the middle of it, I would have a different, um, you know, perspective on what was going on. And then being at Mizzou during those, those protests, um, I think what I learned the most is that from even interviewing people about being Black on campus or in any other space is that you need somebody that's willing to protest and like be on the front lines, but you also need somebody that's at the table that can have their voices heard when policies are being made, um, you know, when uh, other um, laws are being enacted, like somebody that's there that doesn't necessarily, you know, have that 
that motivation to like be outside for hours and like, and you know, hold signs and uh, talk through megaphones. Like you need both. You need both. And I think during this pandemic right now, since everybody's stuck at home, you can't really, well, some people are protesting outside, but neither here nor there. Um, I think that a lot of people have been voicing their opinions about how it's taken a toll on the African-American community. And I think that is something that um, it's, it's kind of saddening to me that people still think that this isn't a thing, that people still think that, oh, it's just made up. And, oh, it's like these things, everybody is it's like uh, John was saying, people think that it's personal responsibility and that it's the choices is on someone else. But if things are already set in place and set in stone for these things to kind of these inequities to thrive, like I said before, then it's not always about your choices. It's not always about your personal um, responsibility because if, if you're in an area where it's, it's not that much you can do, you know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to not only deal with, um, lack of resources in education, lack of resources with food, lack of resources with jobs, but then also have the motivation and the courage to stand up and protest every day and to be that voice at the table every day. Um, That's a, that's a lot to deal with. And I think um, the fact that right now we're losing people at, at an alarming rate is just like, that's another thing on top of everything else that people have to deal with to also um, find that motivation. So I think that, um, towards the end of this, when, when we're kind of getting back to normal, I think we'll see more, more action, like more real action. But I think right now it's kind of like, it, that's a lot for one person to take on. I think what the pandemic has really brought us is a sense of priorities. Um, I think the difficulty of answering this question of like, you know, how are movements doing? How are, how is the legacy of the Ferguson uprising doing? How is, you know, movement for black lives doing? It's difficult to answer because the fight for racial equity is on so many levels. And that's why our, our episodes could be endless. Um, what we're hearing right now is there's a lot of work around census organizing to make sure that people are counted so that they can be heard. We know that there's a lot of priority of bailing people out, um, recognizing the flaws of our justice or injustice system, that um, if people are trapped, if they are not even found to be guilty, but in um, incarcerated, then they aren't accessing um, access. They don't have access to hygiene. They don't have access to um, the ability to socially distance while they're being exposed to um, for example, correctional officers who go in and out into the community and potentially bring viruses in. We're mm-hmm. seeing that there's outbreaks in jails and prisons, and that's something that we're planning to cover. Um, and we're also hearing about what a, a huge debate about who's considered an essential worker. And um, we're finding that essential workers kind of boil down to um, people we need to survive, people who are taking care of others, who are providing food, who are making sure that we can communicate with each other, like with postal workers. And we're finding that actions take the form of strikes, right? Um, and so it's, it is difficult to put your finger on, you know, which one. And I think that goes to a bigger question of, you know, when there's so much, like Lauren said, um, that you're feeling in this moment about there's news every day, there's so much uncertainty about the virus itself. There's, you know, the issue of mortality. And when you're seeing so many loved ones and people who you know, uh, or people who you know, who know someone who's been affected by COVID, it's really hard. Um, and I think what we find, and this is kind of more from a, um, 
a standpoint of advocacy, uh, what we find is that the most sustainable thing to do is to pick just a couple of things that you focus on and know that you're not doing this on your own and that any kind of movement, any kind of um, change is done collectively. And that's what we find in our interviews too. Um, often people who are leading, for example, leading equity, they're not working on their own. They refer to other people that they do things with. Maybe one person's working on investments while another person's working on community building, another person's working with community health workers or research, and all of those have to work together. I feel like this is such like a big and broad topic that I'm not exactly sure where to go next. Um, and you guys have covered so many amazing stories, um, so many inspiring ones. Also, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the racism uh, against uh, Asian Americans uh, during the pandemic and how that has kind of exploded? Um, you know, it was interesting doing that podcast mm -hmm. because uh, often with We Live Here, because St. Louis is such a black and white city, most of the population is either white or black. And then the other um, people who live here, it's a smaller percentage. So I don't find myself speaking on something that's my own experience. I'm, I'm finding myself reporting on something that isn't my own firsthand experience. I'm leaning on Lauren, I'm leaning on the people that we're interviewing, I'm leaning on good research just to hold me accountable as I report on that. Um, and so with the Asian American xenophobia episode, and, and the two of them that we kind of covered it on, one of them being um, doctors who are on the front lines, and then the other one being um, how small business owners are being affected. Um, I find that I was able to tell kind of my own story and how it intersected with that. Um, and the most, both difficult and heartwarming thing about it was learning how early the Asian, Asian American community was responding to COVID-19. That because we're plugged into news that's um, international, we're more aware of what's going on. And we're also knowing firsthand either relatives or friends who are visiting um, different Asian countries who know what's going on with this virus and know that since we're in a global um, world, that everyone's gonna be affected. And so we found that uh, during Lunar New Year at a time where um, Asians are supposed to be celebrating, we're supposed to be preparing, and we're supposed to be enjoying a lot of food and drink, that there were people making the really difficult decision to decide to cut off their profits in favor of public health in favor of saving their families who are multi-generational, who often live together, and um, also saving in some ways the region from the spread of the disease. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I was thinking about as we're paying attention to mainstream news also is the, the danger of labeling a virus according to a people, according to a nation or an ethnicity. It's yeah. so dangerous. It is and horrible. So, um, I think the way I think about it as it connects to my work with Relive Here is that um, if we're going to progress, if we um, are going to truly understand what it means to be in solidarity with one another, we have to understand how these things are connected. That, you know, Asian Americans, whether it's like myself, East Asian, um, we should understand that the same systems of racism that are working against us are the same systems that are working against um, Lauren, you know, with anti-Black racism. If we experience it the same, we're not going to have the same stories, we're not going to be impacted the same. But this hierarchy of white supremacy and then below that, and then um, how society is set up 
is something that we should all pay attention to. We should know our history. We should learn from it and we should be working forward together. There's kind of like a window of opportunity almost um, to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, there should be at all times, but especially right now when um, African-American communities are getting impacted so much by the pandemic, um, there's a lot of reporting that can be done on it um, and maybe people are more willing to listen. Um, So I just was wondering if you guys had any insight on um, how the Black Lives Matter movement can push the agenda um, during the pandemic. Well, I don't, I don't think I have any insight on how they could push the agenda because um, John will tell you that doing this work, and I'm, and I'm just helping tell the story, I get frustrated. Um, I get overwhelmed. I get frustrated often about the stuff that we're covering and the stories that we're hearing because sometimes it's, it can be personal to me or yeah. sometimes it can, you know, bring up something for me. And I think um, even right now during this pandemic, um, even what John was just talking about, the uh, xenophobia and things and things like that, it's like all of these things just keep happening to like minorities and it's just, and it's just, it's just sad. Like, I feel like the the more I do this work is just sad. And it's like, I, I like that it's helping move things forward and it's, and it's pushing things forward. And I think maybe that could be one part of their agenda, just telling those stories. But because I think when you hear about a person's struggle, when you hear about a person's um, things that they're going through, it affects you in, in some kind of way. And sometimes the, it affects the person telling the story because they have to relive that trauma. They have to relive those experiences. Um, so I think that um, right now is just a lot of, you know, making sure that people's stories are heard and that nothing goes, you know, left unsaid. Mm-hmm. So you'd say that storytelling is the best way to kind of get across to people or one of the best ways. Right. I think, I think it's one of the best ways. Um, I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think it's one of the best ways because of how much emotion, how much, um, how much feeling you get from stories. It's like, um, I don't know if you listen to uh, the work that our city defenders uh, were doing with the stories from people who are incarcerated, like hearing those stories and, and hearing about how they don't have access to sanitizer and mask and uh, soap and all these different things. It's like, you don't think, some people don't think about what people are going through that are in a different scenario than they are. And so I think that stories give people a chance to take a look at someone else that's different from them. And it's like putting yourselves in their shoes to understand what they have going on. And it can help you better with when you're, um, if you're a person that's at the table that can speak uh, on behalf of individuals that are dealing with these things. Like we need people to understand um, how other people are feeling so that they can be able to, you know, um, work better and work more equitable and be more for everybody. I mean, I think that every story that you guys have told so far, um, it has really pulled at my heartstrings and I think that it's so important for people to hear the stories that you guys have told because I mean, obviously you can't live through someone, what someone else experiences, but the closest you can do to that is listen to their own stories. So um, just to wrap it all up, um, I just wanted to ask if you have anything to say to, yeah, anyone. I don't know. I think it would just be to try to, um, get involved 
um, stay educated, um, look for the facts. Yeah. <laughs> look for the facts. There's a lot of misconceptions. Stand with the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Stand <laughs> with the facts. Look for the facts. So I think, I think that's the best thing. Stay safe. Stay home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'd say stay curious. We're always trying to learn new things and it's hard right now when we're flooded with a lot of information, but if you can stay curious, have an open mind um, as we're evolving, that will be really helpful. And we know that people, a lot of people are working on solutions. Some that are really big solutions, some that are smaller solutions that matter just as much. So um, everything that you can do just to care about other people during this time is important. But I think um, Lauren brought up a really good point earlier, which is caring for yourself is important because mm -hmm. It is an exhausting time. Um, a lot of us are trying to do what we used to do in our daily lives, whether that's connecting with friends or studying or working. We're doing that during a pandemic. We're doing that during uh, a crisis that is historical. And it's important to go easy on yourself. It's important to have compassion for yourself and other people. And that's, I think, what will carry us through this time. To end this episode, I would like to give a huge thanks to Jalian and Lauren. They are both incredibly talented and smart podcasters. I was definitely nervous and intimidated to be speaking to the hosts of a podcast I love and admire so much. I highly recommend for you to now go and listen to their latest episodes of We Live Here. Please stay safe and sane. And that's all we have for today. Come back soon for another episode of